totally kidding. But anyway, that is the problem with my brain this morning. So anyway, that aside, let's stand together and look at Matthew 11 as we continue on in the chapter as we've been doing. So beginning in verse 7, Matthew 11, verse 7. As these men were going away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What would you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Amen. All right, please be seated. Wonderful, wonderful truths in this this morning. Uh, I've titled this God's Measure of True Greatness. God's Measure of True Greatness. Now, if you were with us last week, you know, um, I felt like I kind of gave John the Baptist a little bit of a hard time. Uh, I don't think I was inaccurate, but I do feel like and felt a little sad for John as we left and kind of pointed out some of the areas of weakness in his life. If, again, you were here, uh, you, you were aware of that. Really, it was very helpful for me because I see in John weaknesses, and John was a great man, as we just read here, and you know that already if you've studied the scriptures. Uh, but it gives me encouragement when I see others who are great spiritual giants have weaknesses in their life. It just helps me to know that there's hope for me along the way. And I don't know if you ever feel that way or not. You know, sometimes we have a tendency to put people up on a pedestal and look at them in a way that we're just not. And uh, in the spiritual realm, at least, we're going to be greatly encouraged by what we just read. And I hope you'll pick up some things here. But anyway, that's kind of my heart this morning in all of these ways. So um, we learned much last time about John's weaknesses. In fact, uh, so much that it created a whole message, as I was just saying. But I want us to know that it wasn't the consistency of John's life. So I don't want to be too hard on John. It was just a time in his life where he needed some encouragement. And, and again, you may be there. There are times where you know the truth, uh, you know God's plans, you know what he has said in his word, but there's just something about your flesh that says, I just need a little bit more. Sometimes I call those with me and, or with God and me, uh, a little times of nuggets. In other words, I'll just say, Lord, I just need a nugget right now. And, and that's kind of my code with him to say, I just need a little bit of encouragement. And he just is always so gracious to do that. And it'll either be through a comment or some physical way or, or something. Not that I have some uh, greater inroad with God than you do, but it's just something that God does with me to encourage my heart. And so I think that was John in all of that. But John was a great, great man. And so let's look at the context to see what Jesus says now about John, but to learn some powerful truths about what God really says about real greatness, at least from God's eyes. And that's what's most important. If you look at the setting here, according to verse 7, John's disciples have just left Jesus to take the message back to John that Jesus had just given them uh, back in the previous verses. Now, what we don't know from Matthew is what Luke does help us with, and that is, and then in chapter 7 of Luke's gospel, in verse 19, John tells us that there were just two of the disciples of John the Baptist that came to Jesus. And so, very specific there in Luke's accounting. 
But nonetheless, as they turn to go away, the Lord turns to the watching crowd. And so if you're the crowd and you're seeing this interlude or this interplay between Jesus and the two disciples, they leave to go off back to John to give this message. And Jesus, in effect, turns to the crowd and he asks this first of three questions. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Okay, now, they have evidently overheard this conversation with Jesus, assumedly, and uh, presumably, I guess. And so they may have been somehow whispering among themselves. I'm not sure what the picture was exactly. We don't have all of that, but we're people. We're, we're human, and we can kind of read between the lines here and understand this. And so Jesus, whatever causes him to say this, he asks this first question. So what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Now, my interpretation of that question is, what were you really hoping to find? If I'm Jesus, that's what I'm asking them. Not for my sake, because I as the Lord know, if I were the Lord. And uh, I think that's what Jesus is doing him, doing here. And some of them might have been thinking, and again, I'm taking some liberty with the text here because we don't know for sure, that maybe John was this great attraction that was just kind of like a circus sideshow. I mean, John was a little bit unique in his life, wasn't he? I mean, we'll talk about that in just a minute, but he was a, a little bit different from other people. He had a little bit of a crazy look to him. Uh, he certainly dressed strangely. He had a really strange diet. He wore some weird-looking clothes or clothes that were very different, and he had a very, very challenging message. And so all of this had a makings of, we got to go kind of see who this dude is all about. And really look and see if he's somebody that's worthy of following. Now, as I'm saying that, we understand that as Hebrew people, they would have heard the message of John and understood the messages of the prophets prior to John. And so there would have been an awareness in their hearts that something is happening here and we need to pay attention to this. Okay, But for all intents and purposes, there is this understanding that John was different. And so maybe that was some of the thinking. Maybe part of their thinking was, we need to go see him before he's gone. I mean, you know, people don't come along like this all the time. And so if there's something really to him that's really special or unique, which apparently it is, then we need to go find out what's happening before, before it's over. And that's not really different from our day. Uh, all of these things are very similar to us. Humanity really hasn't changed any. A lot of people do things to be noticed. Uh, but once they've had their day in the sun, so to speak, they seem to fade away into the sunset. That's just the way life works. Uh, sometimes they leave a legacy uh, of help. Uh, sometimes it's not a good legacy of help. <clears throat> but typically they just become a blip on the radar of life more than anything. And they're kind of here and then they're gone. And that's really because the world is very fickle, always looking for the next great exciting thing, the next most uh, exciting person to give them some kind of entertainment. Uh, if you fall into the YouTube hole, uh, tunnel, whatever you want to call it, uh, you'll find that to be true. Uh, there are some amazing, some things that I would not recommend at all. In fact, there's a button on the side of those that says, do not recommend this channel. And I hit that a lot uh, because it's not worth my time of day or anybody else's. Uh, but there's some things on there that people put as just real life and gadgets they've made. That's always interesting to me. Or if you're a lady, there are things that you may be interested in that are phenomenal. I mean, they're just some really smart people, very gifted, gifted people out there. Uh, some people just do it to be noticed, and you can tell by what they put out there. Some people are trying to make money 
off of the YouTube work. Some people are just doing both. Also, not just YouTube, but if you follow things like professional sports, those of you who do that, and especially in the NFL, since we're in the National Football League season right now, if you've followed Tom Brady over the years, don't do boo hiss or shout hurrahs or whatever. Uh, I was never a Tom Brady fan. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But, you know, you got to give the guy credit. I mean, he is just an absolutely phenomenal quarterback. Now with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, this may not mean anything to you, but some of you it will. Just last week, he threw his 600th touchdown pass, broke all the records of everybody. I mean, he's just a phenomenal athlete. But the reality is, as much as Tom Brady is in the limelight, and many others are, there's going to come somebody who's better than Tom Brady. He'll eventually fade into the background. Now, if Tom were here, he'd probably be going boo his to you. All right? That's not going to happen. But we all know that life is very unstable when it comes to that kind of thing. I was also thinking about uh, an illustration that someone told years ago. Do you remember the name uh, Jim Dobson? Dr. James Dobson, he was with Focus on the Family and very instrumental and really started the ministry and was a part of the radio program for many, many years. Uh, There's a story that he told while he was at USC as a student. He was in the stands and uh, one of the great running backs of of his day at least was there and and just was able to do these unbelievable uh, feats of maneuverability and, and carrying the football field, football down the field and and one particular play, he was injured. This guy was injured. And so um, the story was somehow related to Jim Dobson that this is actually what happened. And so the people are just aghast. You know, they can't believe their star running back has, has just been hurt. And what are we going to do? And so there's just this silence over the stadium. And so they cart him off. And, and um, it's not too long before the guys in the tunnel and back in the locker room, all of a sudden the stadium has just exploded in excitement, almost as if nothing had happened. And so he says, what's going on out there? Everybody was so upset that I'm gone. And the next thing he learns is, that, well, yeah, that was then, but they've just scored another touchdown, and so everybody's all excited again. And the point simply is, is that as great as this guy was, he quickly faded out of the minds of the people because it was just a very temporary kind of thing. And again, we're aware of that. That's kind of how life works when it comes to greatness in a human level. But that's not the case with God. God is not that way when it comes to his definition of greatness. Greatness or value to God is not measured in the same way uh, you and I measure it and how we get lost into that. He doesn't measure it by what we have or what we don't have. He doesn't measure it by who we are in this life necessarily. And I want to qualify that a little bit, certainly. But as far as what you and I think about greatness, God really measures with a very different scale. And that's what we see in this particular section today, at least from what I can discern from the Lord helping me with it this week. And so what I wanted to share with you are three things today that I see out of these verses that John knew about real greatness. And we see it evidenced in his life. And then we're going to see in the third one, at least, how God makes this very clear in a different way. So number one, if you're writing down points, John knew that truly great people are not afraid to acknowledge their weaknesses because they know their real strength comes from Jesus. Okay? That's number one. Truly great people, 
spiritually speaking, as far as God is concerned, are not afraid to acknowledge their weaknesses because they know their strength really comes from Jesus. Now, if you just with me in your mind, go backwards and think about where we were last time. We acknowledge that John could have given up. And I'm talking about literally given up on life. You remember where he was? He's in prison. Right? That's a dark, dismal place, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally and all the things that we talked about last time. But he didn't do that. He didn't give in to his circumstances or his feelings, which would have easily kept him from doing what was right. And even when he couldn't physically do the work because he was in prison, and you know that, right? There was no way for him to continue to do the work of what God had at least seemingly called him to do in a physical sense of proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. He couldn't do. He's stuck in this dark prison. So he could have wallowed in his misery and, and stayed there. But again, he didn't do that. And so I think very simply in this, the point is John didn't let it be an issue that he was weak. Because there are some people, and we all fall into this at times, we all feel the sense of weakness in our lives. We're human. Uh, but he didn't allow himself to go down the path of the woe is me. And there are a lot of times that that happens with us. He didn't let it be an issue that he was weak, that he needed the help of God. His only goal was to follow God and to keep his eyes on the Lord. And that's really where we left off last time. But I wanted to reiterate this as a point because as much as we left John in a weakened state, we have a tendency as human beings in our fleshly lives to think that is true weakness, to just give up and not push forward. Well, John shows that he didn't do that. He stayed with what the Lord wanted him to do and did not let the things of his situation cause him to be anything other than what God had called him to do. Someone, by, someone said this one time, and this, uh, I'm quoting this, is that pride curses true greatness. Pride curses true greatness. That's an interesting statement. But I think it's really very true because pride keeps people from dealing properly with their weaknesses. And think about that. Pride really does keep people, all of us, from dealing with our weaknesses the way that we really should. In our lives, again, pride says, be great. Be a leader. Be the best at everything that you can be. And certainly that's true. We should strive to be the very best people we can be. We've said many times here, even spiritually, we should strive to be the very best spiritual people we can be. We should give God our 150% all the time just simply because of who he is. But our fleshliness says, no, pride is not about exposing weaknesses. Or excuse me, life is not about exposing weaknesses. Greatness is not about exposing weaknesses. In fact, I'll just stuff that. Never let them see me sweat. Never let them know that I am weakened in my life, that I have issues in my life, that there are things that I'm struggling with in my life. And we do it all the time. Think about your conversations that you have with people. You may be going through something right now that's really, really difficult for you. And most likely you are because we're all there at some point. And somebody even this morning may have said to you, hey, how you doing? Well, you got 50 million thoughts running through your head in a split second. And what you really want to say is, I don't think I can go on. If you knew my situation, I don't think I, I just, do you have a couple hours I could share with you? But that's not what we do. 
Because we think that if we share what's really going on in our lives, we'll somehow be looked down upon. Now, we would also say, because we're believers, oh, no, I'm not really going to, I don't really think that. But yes, we do. And it comes out in the way we act in this life. And we also project the same thing on other people. When somebody says, how are you doing? And we are, are actually, when we say, how are you doing? We don't really want the full details. We kind of want the pleasantries. Hey, how you doing? Uh, you know, it's kind of that I'm, I'm in a hurry and I got to keep moving kind of thing. And this person may be really wanting to share with what's going on, but you're not really wanting to hear it because I don't have time to deal with weakness. So I hope you understand the point. Well, John, I think, is proving to us that, hey, look, to his own disciples, he said, I'm, I'm weak right now. I need some encouragement. Go to Jesus and get the answer uh, that will help me right now. And so he understood this. Now, a person who is a good example of how pride keeps us from being the way we want to be is right here in the scripture in the Old Testament of King Saul. You remember him? He was a man who never wanted to show any of his weaknesses. He's a good example of how he thought it was a bad thing. In 1 Samuel 18, this is what we read, and it shows us his heart and his hatred and jealousy for David. Samuel writes, It happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that was after he killed Goliath, that the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands. And David his ten thousands. Ooh. Then Saul became very angry, for he was saying, for his, this saying displeased him. And he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousand, but to me they have ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. And that's when all the problems began. Saul was overtaken by his own pride instead of admitting his weaknesses, and turning to God. You know, wouldn't it have been wonderful if he'd have turned to David and said, hey, David, you know what? Man, God is really using you. You have become really a better leader than I am. Can we just lead the people together or something of some nature like that? You see, that would have been the right response, but that's not what happened. And so he was very much overcome and eventually would lose his life. And again, the truth is, in our humanness, John himself, back to John the Baptist, could have been jealous even of Jesus. Imagine that. Now, I know you've never been there. Listen just for a minute. I mean, John, if he's thinking in his flesh, from his pride, could have said, hey, Jesus is my younger cousin. I'm older than he is. I began my ministry first. I mean, who does he think he is? I had disciples before Jesus had disciples. People listened to me before they listened to him. Do you see how this begins to play out in, in the mind of people? Now, there's no indication in Scripture that John did this. I'm just simply saying this is what John could have done. But he didn't do that. He didn't mind turning over the reins to Jesus. Listen in John chapter 3. Here's what we read. As they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, this is John's own disciples, he, talking about Jesus, who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Do you hear what the disciples are saying? John, this was our gig. This was our thing. 
We had it going on before Jesus, and now he's got people coming to him. But listen to John's heart. He answers in verse 27 and says, A man can receive nothing unless it's been given him, given to him from heaven. Ooh, that's interesting. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. What a heart. What a beautiful response to Jesus. Have you ever been jealous of Jesus? think about it. And some of you are going to say, oh, no way. I mean, he's, he's God. Well, have you ever heard anybody say, well, he doesn't really understand what I'm going through because he's God. Do you know what that's coming from? It's a little bit of a heart of jealousy. How's he going to understand? He doesn't have the problems I do. He can fix anything. He doesn't have to deal with the things that I have to do, deal with. You see what I'm talking about? We do carry some pride and some jealousy, even when it comes to the Lord himself. And so we just need to understand that the people who are the greatest in God's eyes, which is really the most important, are people who trust him no matter what. And don't worry about what they can or can't be in this life. It's not about that. They just keep their eye on Jesus and seek to glorify him with their whole life and everything that they do. That was John. Every day reminding himself, this life is not about me. That's what he was telling his disciples. Hey guys, this is not about me. I think in in a way, the disciples of John thought, we're with John the Baptist. We're going to be something special. But John's reminding him, no, 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 no. I'm not the Christ. I already told you that. Remember that? He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And so John, every day, and I believe this should all fit us, put his spiritual boots on, didn't focus on his situation in life. He was in prison, but just did the work that the Lord gave him to do. Now, I'm using two scenarios there because at this point, John is in prison, but this other part that we were talking about with the other disciples and Jesus' baptisms happened before John was in prison. I wish I had the time to tell you about all the people I've known over the years, and even including my own heart, who make life all about themselves. I mean, you know those folks, right? You talk to them about your life just for a split second because they've asked you, how are you doing? And all you do is begin to open your mouth for a second, and they just begin to flood you with all their problems and their emotions. And no matter what you try to give to them as a source of help and encouragement, it's always, uh uh-huh, it's not going to work. This is never going to happen. But have you tried this? Oh, that'll, that'll never work. Well, what about this? Have you done this? Oh, <laughs> there is just no way. That for sure won't work. And you just kind of find yourself going, good grief. Okay, well, somehow people, we, and we do this in our sinfulness, we just find a way to make life about us. You ever heard that one-upmanship kind of conversation? Or again, you're telling somebody about your life and your situation. They say, well, let me tell you what happened to me. And so well-intentioned, and I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying this is how we are. We're very weak people. And we strive so heavily for greatness. But we miss what true greatness is, really, in the eyes of God. And again, he's the only one that's really 
important in this subject, in every subject, really. So again, John was in prison, but his goal was to follow the Lord. But he did need a little encouragement, and that's what we've seen. Okay, now, that's point number one. Our greatness is really displayed through our weakness. Secondly, true greatness is not measured by the amount of worldly pleasures and comforts, okay, but by how God, or how much God occupies of our heart. Let me say it again. True greatness is not measured by the amount of worldly pleasures and comforts, but by how, how much God occupies our hearts. Look with me in verse 8. Second time, Jesus asks the same question. But what did you go out to see? And Jesus begins now to answer the question again for them. A man dressed in soft clothing... Those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. Now, just pause right there for a second and reflect on what Jesus is saying. He's saying, what did you go out to say? What did you really hope to find in John the Baptist when you went out there? This man who had everything that life could offer? No. I mean, that's what the people in high places and wealth pursue. And I'm talking about in a fleshly sense. It's not wrong for believers to have money. I hope you know that. But we all know almost everything in this life is about making things easier for ourselves. Everything's like that. Everything that's marketed to us is about making sure we're either safe, making life easier, we're financially okay, making life easier, or some kind of gadget is given to us or sold to us to make life easier for us. Do you remember when you had to get up and change the channel on the TV with your hand? Remember that? Now, when I go into my living room, I just say, Alexa, turn the TV on. She comes on. Alexa, good morning, or no, how we say it? We say, Alexa, let there be light. And all the lights in the house come on. It's amazing. I get ready to go to bed at night, and I say, Alexa, good night. All the lights go off. I mean, we just have all of these gadgets. All of you probably have a smartphone, right? Do you remember the old Palm Pilots and the Blackberries and the things that you had to, you know, begin to manipulate with your hands because you wanted to make notes to yourself electronically? Well, now we have, hey, Siri, remind me of this. Or we dictate to ourselves and it just pops up at the right time. Or we'll say, Alexa, order this. Or Alexa, do that. And some of you may not know what I'm talking about. If you need more information on that, I'll give it to you. I sell them in my office. I'm just, just kidding. You can even set your thermostat remotely. You could check your thermostat right now, right in the middle of the pastor's sermon, just to make sure life is comfy when you get home, right? All of that, and that's cool stuff. I mean, I love gadgets. There's nothing greater to me. But sometimes they can really take precedence over what life is really all about. I've, have you seen the latest commercial? I think it's by Chevy, uh, or it might be a GMC truck where a guy is driving down the highway. I just saw it the other night, and he's got no hands on the wheel. Have you seen this one? Blitzing down the highway, and the, 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 the dashboard is showing the lights there that, okay, you're in your lane, and it'll even shift lanes for you now where you're driving your car. I mean, all of these various gadgets, and of course, you know, the parking itself and all that kind of thing, simply designed to take away the struggle of man. Whatever we can do to make life easier and remove pain, remove the effort that he goes through just so he can have an easier life. But God never promised that. 
an easier life, that is, right? We've looked at this many times before, John 16, 33. Jesus himself, the Lord in the flesh, says, in this life, you're going to have trouble. Get used to it. It's going to happen. And I think he promised that for a couple reasons. One, because we're sinful, and the world is sinful, and so we create problems. Other people create problems for us, and so it becomes a very difficult life. But I think secondly, it's because he knew that life, when it's easy, or when it's at its easiest, we really don't look to him for very much. And is that an honest statement? I mean, am I the only one who's like that? I hope not. I feel a little weird if I'm the only one that's like that. But isn't it true that when life gets more challenging, we have a tendency to look to him more? And so I think, now not in a mean-spirited way, but I believe the Lord is really allowing us to live in this troubled world for the main purpose of displaying his glory. We'll talk about that more in just a minute. But also to understand that we need him. We have to have him in order to get our way through this. The problem with sinful man is, is that we hate that too. We don't want to have to need anybody. I mean, sure, we want people to give to us, right? Who doesn't want something freely given to them, especially something valuable? But we really don't want anybody to have to do something for us. That's the sinful man. He hates that kind of need. Uh, so much so that he'll fill his day with working himself to death to provide his own way. Now, there is a sense of rightness in all of this, right? We have to get up and go to work. We have to make sure we do the things that we're supposed to do. But we just don't necessarily like to ask somebody for help. We'll just do it ourselves. It's kind of the old cowboy mentality of, I ain't taking no charity, man, kind of thing. You know, I'll figure it out. Why? Because we think that if I can figure it out, that'll make me great in the eyes of somebody. And maybe even me. We try to convince ourselves that we'll be greater to ourselves and feel better about ourselves if I can figure it out. And so why would I ever ask for somebody to help me with anything? Well, one of the ways John made himself feel successful or great, or really anybody makes themselves feel great, is to... John was not this way. He's the actual, actual opposite of this, is to accumulate more stuff. Right? You go to the closet and you realize, oh, man, good grief, where'd all this stuff come from? But we think, this is great. The more I can get, the more I can have, the more I'll be better off, my life will be easier, and yada, 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 it goes on and on and on, and we find ourselves getting into trouble more than anything else. There's an illustration of a guy who did this and believed this in Luke chapter 12, and Jesus really challenged him on it. Notice this, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Okay? It's like he's kind of uh, grumbling about the fact that somebody got more than he did as a family member, and I know you've never been through that either. But he said to him in verse 14, man who appointed, He says, Man who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you. In other words, that's not why I came. Then he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even one... Not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man was very productive. And so he's just given them this, this visual word picture here. And he begins reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? In other words, man, life has been good. The crops have come in. And then he says, this is what I'll do. 
I'll tear down all those old barns and I'll build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And we've never done that, have we? Do you remember when you started out when you were married or when you were first starting out in life and you only had a few things? Remember when my wife and I first moved in those first few years, I could stuff everything with us that we had and a couple kids into one of those small U-Haul trucks. I remember having to really push in to shove the door down. But all that was, would go in pretty easily. Well, try to do that now. Not so easy. So we rent storage spaces and we buy bigger houses all because we got to have somewhere to put our stuff, right? Well, that's what this guy's saying. And then he says, notice this, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Wow, the good life. But God said to him, you're a fool. It's pretty strong language. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who's going to own what you've prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God's giving a very alarming statement there. He's saying a couple things. One is, you are not in control of your life. I'm in control of your life. So you can spend all your life building up this great kingdom to yourself, but you have no idea when I'm going to require your life for eternity. That could come right now. And so he's saying, listen, don't be foolish. That's the point. Don't be foolish and store up for yourselves things thinking that you're going to have this marvelous, wonderful life. He did not say don't have things. But what he did say is, don't put your hope in those things as if you're going to be eternal in this life. It's not going to happen. Now, I'm saying all that to say that John is showing us the right picture. He understood true greatness because his focus was on the Lord. Again, it wasn't wrong for him to have anything. But when John looked at his life, it was just about what he could get by with for that day. And I'm not suggesting that we should all do what John did, and that is survive on locusts. Not saying that. That's what John did, though. And he drank, swallowed it down with wild honey. Again, we talked about how he had weird clothing. Instead of going to the latest pharisaical clothing store at the mall, he had one set of clothes, this weird-looking camel hair jumpsuit with a leather belt that he would hold it together with. It probably smelled like an old dead camel. You know, and that's what he lived with. That's how he lived his life. Again, I'm not saying that we should necessarily do that. The point simply is, John was not focused on the physical things of life. His focus was on the things of God. He didn't need to worry about what he was going to wear. God had already pro promised he would provide that. He didn't have to worry about having the best or the coolest clothes. In fact, he took scripturally what was called the Nazarite vow. That was because of what Gabriel had said. He'll be set aside. And so there was this thing called the Nazarite vow that many people would take, but they would only do it temporarily, kind of like we would do a temporary fast. Well, not John. John purposed in his whole life to live this Nazarite vow, which was to stay away from any liquor or alcohol, no wine, no cutting of the hair, and no touching of the dead body. You might remember that was Samson back in the Old Testament. And his life wasn't because he was trying to make himself more holy. That's not what John was doing either. Again, this wasn't about John. You know, there are some people who do certain holy things to make themselves look good spiritually. 
They may dress a certain way. They may do certain things. They may try to have certain things to look better than the next person spiritually. They may give more to the church so that they look better spiritually. They may do more at the church to look better spiritually. They may want the job of some leadership position to look better spiritually. And so we fall into this kind of thing. Listen to some things that people did in the past. One man, and I'm just quoting from a writer here, he says, one man wore heavy chains about his neck that forced him to crawl on his hands and knees. Imagine that now. The purpose was to make himself look spiritually destitute so he's this humble person. And to do so, he physically put these big chains on his neck. Here's another one. For 40 years, a monk slept only while sitting in a chair. And the only time I ever do that is if I'm hurting about something. Another man lived without clothes in a swamp for six months and was so severely bitten by mosquitoes that he had his body look leprous. Still another man died at the age of 72 after having spent 37 years sitting atop various pillars, the last of which was 66 feet high. In 1403, the father of the beautiful, respected, and wealthy Agnes de Rocher died she decided to become a religious recluse. From the age of 18 until the age of 80, when she died, Agnes spent her life sealed in a small chamber, specially built into the wall of a Paris cathedral. A small opening enabled her to hear the Mass, receive communion, and accept gifts of food from friends. Now, folks, listen, that's ridiculous. But these people literally did this kind of thing all in an effort to show their holiness, believing there's something I can do to prove how much more holy I am than you are. But that was not John. John lived a secluded life, it is true. He lived a weird kind of life to you and me, but not for his own recognition, but simply because, listen to this now, because this is where we're going to go next, and our third point, he was called by God. God had said, this man will belong to me. And by the way, he will be the forerunner, the long-awaited prophet who will usher in the king of kings. And he will live this kind of life really for his own physical and spiritual benefit so that he would not be distracted by anything else in the world. Again, God is not saying to us, go be John the Baptist. Sell your home, live in your car, eat locusts and wild honey. He's not saying that. But this is what John did as a Example to us to say the focus really should be on God in all things. Let's get to this third point. True greatness is founded upon God's calling. Okay, God's calling. True greatness is founded upon God's calling. Notice verse 9. Here's the third question. Same question last time. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah. I tell you. And one who is more than a prophet. Again, the same question. Basically saying, oh, so you went into the wilderness to see truly a great man, did you? And you found him, did you? Yes, you did. Because he is truly great in the sight of God. And why is that? Because he's greater than any other prophet that has ever come along. In fact, there's not been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. Until John came on the scene. And so truly, John was an amazing man, but it was God who had done the work in John. It was God who had called John. Remember this back in Luke 1, 15? For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, 
And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. God had done a great work here. And so Jesus now picks up on that truth in verse 10 back in our text now and says, This is the one about whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And Jesus is quoting the Old Testament prophet Malachi in chapter 3, verse 1. So he's going backwards and he's saying to the people currently, look, John is the guy that Malachi was prophesying about. So you know him, the prophet anyway, he's the guy. Now some people have been confused about what Malachi is really writing here. And so let me translate that for you in the way that I see this. Behold, I, Jehovah, that's the Father, another name for the Father, send my messenger, okay, John the Baptist, to be the forerunner of you, Jesus the Messiah, and to prepare the people for your coming. Now, the point in all of that is, is that John was a great man because he had a great calling. Which is why the Lord would refer to him in verse 11 that we read as our text when Jesus said, there is none greater than John the Baptist. Now why is Jesus saying that? Well, he's saying that because there was nobody on earth like John who was a human being. No, no person on earth at the time or ever before or at least up until that point, was great as John as a human being. There was nobody that compared to his greatness. Well, none at least of what John was on earth compares to the greatness of everyone who will be in heaven. And listen carefully to what I'm saying here because this is a profound truth. I hope you have all ears this morning. If you don't hear anything else, listen to this. You say, well, Pastor, that's a pretty strong statement. Let me say it again. None of what John was on earth compares to the greatness of everyone who is and will be in heaven. And we've just spent two messages talking about how great John was. But now Jesus says something staggering. Look at the second part of verse 11. As much as John was great, I'm telling you, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater even than John. Wow. So Jesus, in his own amazing way is comparing the human John to the person who's born again and saved by Christ's blood in heaven. And he's saying, look folks, John, as great as he is, he was called by God. Gabriel, God's archangel, came and delivered the message to his father, Zacharias, and said, here is who your son will be, even in your older age. He is going to be the greatest of all people. Jesus comes along and says, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist born among women. Not one. And then he says this in verse 11b, yet, that's a pivot point, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than than he. Staggering. A staggering statement. Because what that means is that even though John was the greatest on earth because of his call by God and because he was greatly used by God, there's no question about that more than anybody else up to his time, his greatness was only in the role of human history. That's what Jesus is saying. In other words, his spiritual inheritance Everything that John gained is not greater than any other person who has accepted or will accept Jesus as Lord of their life. 
boy, changing the picture of how we often look at people and say, boy, I wish I was like them. I wish I was great like him or her. And Jesus is saying, time out. Let's talk about the greatest person in the world who's ever been born in a human sense, John the Baptist. The least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Wow. You understand what this means? I hope you do. Because what it really means is, is as much as God chose John the Baptist, and we've already made that very clear, to do the work that he did while he was on earth, you and I are called by God just the same as John was. You say, well, what do you mean by that? Was I called to be John the Baptist? Is that what you're asking? No, that's not what I'm saying. John was the only one as John the Baptist, and he was great on the earth, at least great in the world's eyes. But the reason what I'm saying here is, is that God called you and me just the same to be his child. Listen to how Paul writes this. Ephesians chapter 1. He starts out with what sounds like just a pleasantry to begin his letter, and it is certainly, but there's a meaning behind it. He says, blessed, listen to every word, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's praising the Father because of Jesus. But watch this. I'm praising him because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I want to I give you this meaning here, so don't, don't go to sleep. You and I have been given the blessings we have not because of what we have done. It's not because of who we are. It's not because of who we were born to, where we live, where we work, or anything like that. We have the blessings we have spiritually because Paul says we are in Christ. We are blessed because of Jesus and his work alone. And we are in Christ, why? Because we walked an aisle? Because a preacher gave a great message and we said, I need Jesus. That could be all possible, but that's not what Paul says. We are in Christ because, look at the words, he chose us. That's what it says. Jesus chose us. When did he do that? To be in him before the foundation of the world. That we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. That word predestined means to foreordain or to predetermine. God did it. Just as God chose John the Baptist to be the amazing servant that he was here on the earth, God is now saying through the Apostle Paul, hey, for every person who is going to be in heaven, I chose them. You say, well, how did God accomplish that? Well, Paul says, it was through Jesus Christ that God the Father brought us to himself. But why did God the Father do such a thing? Why would God choose you or me at all? Paul answers that too. Because of the kind intention of his will. In other words, God is kind. And he has a purpose for what he does. And Paul explodes in this triumphant praise saying, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Now that's a mouthful. But what the apostle is saying is that he called us for his sake, for his glory, so that you and I would be a display of his love and his mercy. 
You see, this life is not about us. We've said that many times over the years. If you're new here, you may not have heard that, but we've said that many times over the years. God over and over again reminds us, listen, this life is not about you. If you are my child, you've given your life to me, this life is about me, God is saying. I called you to be my child, yes, to rescue you from the penalty of sin, yes, but I left you here on earth so that you will be a display of my glory to the world. You're a picture to the world. Wouldn't it be nice if God had just taken us to heaven the moment we got saved? And everybody said amen. But he didn't do that, did he? And why didn't he do that? Paul's answering that. Because out of the kind intention of his will, he wants other people to see him. And the way he does that is not through Jesus physically now. Jesus is back in heaven. He does that through you and me who have the spirit of God living in us. I was telling the first service that uh, Debbie and I, and I mentioned this to you as I was beginning my message today, that Debbie and I went to a wedding yesterday uh, in Richmond last night. And, and it, was, uh, it was beautiful in its scenery. Uh, it was beautiful in the way the people were dressed. It was fun to be there with people we knew. I was not a part of it. I was just there as a guest. But it was one of the saddest situations I've ever been in as far as marriages go. And the reason it was sad was because not one time, and I kid you not, through the entire night, not one time was God or Jesus mentioned. That's a sad thing. And the reason it's sad is because what most people miss is that marriage, in an earthly sense, is to be a display of God's picture between himself and his bride, the church. Did you know that that's why Christians get married? It's not really about us. Now, we get the benefit of enjoying the company of our partner, our spouse. But the real purpose behind a Christian marriage is to be a witness to the world that says, hey, as much as we are husband and wife, our heavenly father, our savior rather, is married to his bride, the church. This earthly picture is a picture of Christ and his love for his bride. And so marriage is just a symbol that points to Jesus. You see that? Well, in the same way, God's choosing and calling of us benefited us, certainly, because we get the glorious kingdom one day. But the real reason he saved us is so that we would display his glory to the world. That's why he chose us. And that's why he could do that in the beginning. And so God chose all who will believe for salvation to bring himself glory. One last verse, 2 Thessalonians 2, 14 Paul writes to the church there, it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he did all of that through the work of the Holy Spirit and through our faith. So yes, we have a part in this salvation, which is we must believe. That's the only requirement that God puts on his people other than living a righteous life once we're saved. In other words, God saves us because he's chosen us but he saves us when we say, yes, Lord, I see my weakness. I know I can't live this life without you. And I certainly can never make it into the kingdom without your work that you did on the cross, paying the price of my sin. And so by faith, we trust in what God has done. So I don't want you to hear otherwise. But the reality is we come to God knowing that it was not anything we could have done. God had to call us. And so... You were saved when you trusted Christ for who he is and what he did, nothing else. And listen, nothing 
nothing, nothing, nothing you do or are or hope to be or ever could be was good enough for God to save you. You were saved by God's grace because he chose to do so. And you're saved because he called you and you responded. You believed in what God said. Listen to how Paul says this to the church in Rome. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? And the kind of church is going, yeah, that's right, Paul. There's not one who's righteous. But listen to this, verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, there's that legal declaration. We are made right legally in the counsel of God's holiness by the gift of his grace which was giving to us his son whom God displayed publicly on the cross, basically, as an appeasement in his blood through faith. You believe in what Jesus did. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his forbearance he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, the reason God did all of what he did through his son is so that God could righteously, justly, judiciously, sovereignly forgive you and me, not because of what we did, but because of what Jesus did. And we have the glorious kingdom given to us because we simply said, Father, I believe. I trust in that. I trust in him. That's why we say Jesus is not a, a um, he's not an emotion. He's not some thing out there. He's not some concept. People will say, I didn't have a lot of emotion when I talk about Jesus. Well, Jesus is not an emotion. Jesus is God come in the flesh who gave his life for us so that we can have the hope of eternity. Emotions come with that. Probably a lot of emotions. But Jesus is not, a, not an emotion. We are saved by what Jesus did. Please don't miss that. And true greatness, all I'm saying here is that I see in John true greatness, yes, because of what he lived out on this earth, which is what you and I do after we're saved. We look at the rest of Scripture and we hear the writings and we go, okay, now that I'm saved, I need to strive to live this way because I am saved. I am a part of God's family. Again, so as much as John was a great man, you and I are great in the kingdom of heaven according to Jesus himself, greater even than John was on the earth. Why? Because God chose you for salvation and you accepted his call by faith. And in God's world, that makes you a really great person. So much so that there's nobody greater even in the kingdom of heaven. The least of the people in the kingdom of heaven are greater. Isn't that wonderful news? I mean, what news could be greater than that? That we don't need to be somebody. We don't need to have riches. We don't need to have fame or fortune or to be the best in our field or the person who gets all the attention in life. Now, that doesn't mean we don't strive to be the best we can be. We should be, especially as Christians. We should be the best workers. We should be the guy who, or, or lady who's the best on the job. We should be the one who proves ourselves as the best employee. But we're not doing that so we'll get some merit from God. God's already given us every merit that we need. That's why we belong to Him. It was all in Him. So again, take heart. Don't get lost. 
in the struggles of this life. Look to Jesus. That's what John did. Keep your eyes focused on him. Don't get caught up in who you are, who you're not. Just follow Jesus and make sure you're surrendered to him every day. And um, the real question is, have you put your hope in him? That's the real question. That's really the only question, that you put your hope in Jesus. And that, then, will make you great in the eyes of God. Isn't it better to be great in the eyes of God than the the rest of the world? Yeah, amen to that, right? All right. Well, we could go on, but we won't. Already taking too much time. Let's stop. Father, we thank you for your love. Ooh, boy, Lord, we thank you for your great calling. Thank you for such a beautiful and wonderful example of John the Baptist. And we're going to see more about him as we come together next time, as we learn and delve into this subject a little bit more. But Lord, thank you that you are a God who considers us great, not because of us, but because of what we've believed about you. Lord, for anyone who may be here today and may be struggling with whether they are truly born again, I pray, Father, that you would help them to realize that it is not in something that they are to do or to become themselves, but they simply release themselves, understanding that there is nothing they can do except fully cast their hearts to you and trust you for who you are and what you've done. So, Father, do your work, we pray, always. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.